Good morning. Uh, this morning's reading comes from Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my, and my, sorry, and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stephanie, for reading. So cool that she's able to do that and read Braille and participate in that way. You pray with me. Oh Lord, we don't want to be like those uh, of whom are prophesied in Isaiah 1, who have eyes but don't perceive and ears but don't hear. No, we want to see, we want to hear, we want to understand what it is you have to say to us. So open our eyes this morning, unstop our ears, soften our hearts. Would the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, prick our hearts in such a way that we would we would be saturated and filled with him and filled with your spirit. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Well, as we approach Easter, we're in a season called Lent. Lent is a season of, in many ways, in the church calendar and church history, it's a season of recommitting ourselves to following Jesus, getting ready for Easter. A lot of times when we think of Lent, we think of giving things up. Uh, that is certainly part of following Jesus, but it's not the only part of following Jesus. So as we look to the cross, as we anticipate the cross, we're looking for Jesus uh, in the Psalms, in some ways an unexpected place. Now, if you've never actually read the Psalms, you find that um, you might think they're, they're just kind of a nice collection of fluffy Bible verses that look really great on the front of a Hallmark card. Um, but if you've read the Psalms, 
more than just the handful of verses that you see on the front of the cards at the Hallmark store, you know that they are some of the grittiest, realest, earthiest, most heart-rending uh, songs ever written. They're songs. We don't have the tunes to them, and I wish we did. But they are a collection of 150 songs where various authors, largely King David, but there are other authors as well, uh, sing to God, and they sing the full spectrum of emotion. This morning, we're looking at Psalm 16. Psalm 16, uh, we're titling it A Song for When Sin Seems Good. By the way, these titles for this series are not original to me. I'm indebted to a pastor from England named Tim Chester who uh, structured them in this way, and I found it very helpful. A song for when sin seems good. In other words, what do we do in those moments when anything other than God seems really appealing? Now, this could be anything. There are obvious answers you know, oh, it seems really appealing to chase after something material. But, but there are also less obvious answers. What do you do in the world when, when you are drawn to anger? When something happened that just sets you off and you feel drawn to express your anger? Or what do you do when you feel drawn to laziness and you just, you just cannot get going and all you want to do is, what do you do in those moments? It's really, in a sense, a song all about desire. So we're going to look at desire this morning, and we're going to look through kind of three lenses. We're going to look at the nature of desire. We're going to look at distorted desires, and we're going to look at better desires. The nature of desires, distorted desires, or better desires. You might phrase it a little bit differently if you like Jeopardy and you want to phrase it as questions. We'll ask, what is desire? Secondly, we'll ask, how do our desires go awry? How do they become distorted? And then thirdly, how can we redeem our desires? So let's just start right from the outset. The nature of desire. This is the shortest point. I don't think I have to explain this a whole lot. What is, what is desire itself? When does desire arise? It's when you want something or when you feel like you don't have enough of something. So imagine last night I had just finished dinner and I wanted something sweet to eat. I wanted dessert. I, I desired dessert because I hadn't had it. I felt like I hadn't had enough. Now, imagine I ate dessert and I ate half a chocolate cake. I probably wouldn't desire any more chocolate cake after that. Maybe you would. I don't know. (laughs) Why not? Because I'd had enough. I was filled up. I would probably be pretty sick, actually. So we we just desire things we don't have or things we feel like, we perceive like we don't have enough. And here's the one, this is probably the most important thing, just to remember about the nature of desire is desire is not wrong. A lot of times we assume that desire is a bad thing. We assume that we shouldn't have these things. There's a modern misconception, even among Christians, that the Christian life is just about about stamping out your desires. That couldn't be further from the truth. And in fact, we're going to come back later in the sermon to see just how misguided that is. But let me just touch on it briefly for now and and give you an appetizer of where we're going. Uh, That would be rigid behavioralism, and every psychologist says it doesn't work. If you grew up in the church, and if you grew up, especially if you grew up going to church camp, remember the, um, I don't think they do this anymore, there used to be this chant, you know, we don't smoke, we don't chew, we we don't go with boys that do. Anybody ever chant that at Christian camp? We don't smoke, we don't chew, we don't go with boys that do, or with girls that do. Um, What is that? That's, That's just... 
behavioralism. And actually, did you notice if, you're, if you were at that camp and you chanted that yourself or you heard it chanted, how often were the people chanting that the loudest? How often did they actually become the ones who did go with that boy or that girl? Almost every single time. The loudest, brashest, most kind of self-important uh, behavioralist, the best behaved person, often is the one who flies off the rails the most. You ever notice that? It happens in part because we don't have an accurate understanding of desires. We think that comes from a misunderstanding that says desires are bad and I just need to squash them. But it doesn't work. And they always come back up. See, when you stuff desires down and just pretend like they don't exist, it's like tightening the lid of that Coke bottle. And over time, through just life, the bottle gets shaken up, and what happens? The pressure builds, and the pressure builds. And if you tighten that lid and shake the bottle enough, eventually it's going to go all over the place. Desires aren't wicked. They're not evil. They're inevitable. In fact, if you think about it, God created us with desires. By the very fact that God made you, he guaranteed that you would have desires. Because remember, desire is when you don't have enough of something or you think you don't have enough of something. But if God is infinite and he made us with limits, then inevitably there is going to be something we don't have. Desire is inevitable, it's inescapable. So we've got to deal with this just a little bit. If God created us and made desire inevitable, then if desire were also evil, God would be wicked. He would be cruel. He would just be setting us up for failure. Desires aren't bad. They're inevitable. We just have to learn kind of what to do with them. Now, let me give away the end of the sermon right here. I'll I'll give you the answer now, and then I'll show you my work kind of for the rest of it and see how we arrive there. Because only God is infinite, then only God can satisfy our truest and deepest desires and longings. Everything else in the world is finite. It's created. It's limited. It's imperfect. It runs out. It dies. Therefore, everything else will be ultimately unsatisfying. Nothing else can fulfill our desires. Nothing else will. Nothing else can. Uh, St. Augustine, I don't know if any of you have read uh, Confessions by St. Augustine, one of the most profound, influential Christian books probably in history, and he opens it by saying, our hearts are restless, Lord, till they find their rest in thee. So we get into trouble, not when we have desires, not when we want things, but when our desires become distorted, when we think that something else can fill a space that only God can space. So when I think all I need, when you think all I need is what? a raise. Fill in the blank. How do you fill in the... All I need in this world is blank and I'll be okay. Is it a higher paycheck? Is it... All I need is for my kids to go to the right college, to get into the right college. All I need is to get married. All I need is for so-and-so to respect me. All I need is to be beautiful. However you measure that, whatever standard you measure that by. All I need is to find a job that's meaningful and that fulfills me. How do you fill in that blank? All I need is blank. Now notice, every single one of those things is a good thing. Did you, do you, you know that, right? Like, to be married is good. 
It's not, it's, it's not better, but it's, that, but it's good. To have kids, your kids get into a good college is good. Money is good. It's a tool. We can use it for profound good. Respect is good. Beauty is good. Career fulfillment is good. All of those things are good. So what's the problem with those? The problem is when we assign those things to ultimate importance that can never fully fill us. In other words, the desire became distorted. We took something that's good and made it ultimate. The salary is nice, but eventually you're going to want even more. It, it will, the, the pleasure that you get from it will run out. Marriage is good, but your spouse will disappoint you. Inevitably. Beauty is good, but then eventually the beauty, at least by the airbrushed standards of the magazines today, it fades, right? And the wrinkles and the grays start coming in and becomes more and more impossible to keep up. See, every single one of those things fades. Uh, Ernest Becker was, uh, he was an anthropologist. He died in the 1970s. Secular, not a Christian. He won the Pulitzer Prize, and he spent his whole career studying the problem of evil. This is really interesting to me. He's studying the problem of evil. Why does evil exist in the world from a, non, from a non-religious perspective? And he writes this at one point. He says, we are all born with a deep neurotic fear of insignificance, that we will have no effect on the world, and therefore we are driven into heroism. In other words, he says, we're all afraid, let me translate, we're all afraid that we're not going to live up, we're not going to be significant, I'm not going to leave my stamp on the world, I'm afraid of being insignificant, and therefore I'm going to work even harder to leave my stamp, to leave my legacy, my imprint, my reputation, whatever word you want to substitute in there. And in fact, he says, when you look at some of the, even the most profound acts of wickedness, they have come out of a desire to leave an imprint on the world. Now, he was not a Christian. He was very secular. He died almost 50 years ago. And yet I wonder how much, if he realized, how much his research and his conclusions align with Scripture. See, when we bank on anything in this world, really, anything, to to fulfill us, to satisfy us, we just set ourselves up for disappointment. We're asking them to do something they cannot do. This is what the Bible calls sin. It's just, sin is not that you did wicked things. It's, I mean, it kind of is, but it's actually just perverted and distorted goods. You took something good and made it ultimate. You took something created and treated it like the creator. You valued, you appreciated the gift more than the giver. On a cosmic level, it's like forgetting to send the thank you note. You know how you, you know, your, your mother and probably a lot of us, like you give a gift and the it's, it's actually not wrong. Like, you kind of expect a thank you note. Why? Because if you don't get a thank you note, then the person who got the gift, then it communicates they care more about the thing you gave them than about you, the giver of the gift. By the way, this is no different than what Adam and Eve did. It's rooted in history. Remember what the serpent tells Adam and Eve? If you just eat this piece of fruit, you will become, a direct quote, you will become like God. That's a powerful piece of fruit, isn't it? (laughs) It was, for a different reason, for a reason they didn't expect. He's saying this one thing, this one created thing will satisfy your deepest 
longings. How do you fill in that blank? If I just have this, if I just have this. Now, here's the key question. This is what we're going to spend the rest of the time dealing with. What do you do when, on the one hand, your desires for certain things are inevitable, and on the other hand, you know those things will never actually satisfy your desires? You see the tension there? You're going to have desires. We're going to desire things in the world. The things in the world aren't bad, and yet they can't fill us. Where do we go? Let's just look real quickly at two wrong ways of approaching that, and then we'll look at what I think is the right way. Two wrong ways and one right. And I'm indebted to uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in Manhattan, who first introduced me to this framework. He says there's a modern secular approach to kind of dealing with desire, and then there's a traditional religious approach. And the two are in tension with one another, and actually both are wrong. That may surprise you to hear, but both the modern secular approach and the traditional religious approach are wrong. They're not consistent with Scripture. Let me show you how very quickly. Let's unpack that. The modern secular approach to desire is just fulfill it. Get it. Be true to yourself. Get as much as you can. Follow your feelings. Follow your heart. The world is your oyster. Do whatever you know. Whatever your heart gives you, do it. There are a number of problems with that. Here are two. First, we already talked about it. Those longings are never enough. Like, they run out. You'll need more and more and more. It becomes like an addiction. But secondly, what happens when your desires contradict my desires? What happens when you want something and I want something else and the two are incompatible? Well, then you get what you want and you're happy, but then I resent you. Or I get what I want and I'm happy, but you resent me. So it's not a long-term sustainable um, pattern. On the other hand, the traditional religious approach takes the opposite attack. It it says, don't fulfill your, don't don't fulfill and just give in to your desires. In fact, stamp them down. We talked about this just a little bit about. Squash them. Don't act on them. They're all, uh, buckle down, suppress your desires. And by the way, in the traditional religious approach, the, the right thing to do, just do the right thing, which basically means do the least fun thing, and, and someday God will reward you in heaven. Suffer now, glory later. There are a number of problems with that. Here are two of those. First, if you're denying desires at all, but God created us with the inevitability of desire, in a sense, we're dishonoring how God created us. And secondly, and now we're getting into Psalm 16, and I know we're like halfway into the sermon and I haven't even talked about our psalm yet today, but I'm getting there. In Psalm 16, what does David say? He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Or in verse 11, towards the end, the very last verse, he says, you fill me with joy in your presence. The more traditional translation, in your presence is joy forevermore. Eternal pleasures are, present tense, are right here, right now, at your right hand. The problem with the traditional religious approach is it doesn't allow us to really feel or experience that deep longing, that deep satisfaction. It says, no, just squash out the bad. It's like... um, Last summer, for a number of reasons, we've had a little backyard garden, and we decided not to have the garden, and at the same time, Elliot discovered that she loves to dig in the dirt. Aimlessly, just give her a garden trowel and put her in some shorts, and she's 
happy. She could just sit there and dig and dig and dig. And you know what happens when you leave your garden and just let it go for a little while. The weeds all pop up. And so we weren't going to grow anything. So I went through one afternoon and I tilled the whole thing up with a shovel. Just a beautiful field of dirt that she could dig in. And you know what that beautiful field of dirt looked like a, a month later? A lush sea of green. Nothing but weeds. Now, I, what could I have done? I could have just gone on plucking, plucking all of the weeds. And then in a month, we would have had more. And then I plucked more weeds, and in a month, we would have had more. See, the traditional religious approach is to manage sin like that. Just keep plucking the weeds out of the garden. Keep uprooting the bad. Keep, don't, 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 don't. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But what happens? You're constantly weeding, and at the end of the day, even if you're successful, all you're left with is a patch of dirt. You know what the more effective approach to weed management is in a garden? You fill that garden with lush, healthy, dense uh, vegetation. If I can fill that garden with squash and tomatoes and carrots and all of these plants, they'll, they'll actually naturally choke out the weeds. The approach to desire is not to squash desire, but to cultivate the right desires, to cultivate the right longings. And that gets us to our last point, that this is not just about squashing desire and don't do anything fun. That's not Christian at all. The Christ-like approach, the God-honoring approach, is to cultivate the right Desires. Look at how David starts in verse 2, uh, basically the third line down if you're following in the bulletin. He says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Can you, can you say that along with King David? In other words, if you were to lose everything else in this life, everything, you know, the whole list of things that we talked about, the, imagine your investments crashed. Imagine you never got married or you lost a marriage. Imagine that people you care about turned and disrespected you. You never found fulfillment in career. You just worked a, a boring, drudgerous nine to five for 40 years. Could you say that God's presence alone is enough? Now, he doesn't literally mean that nothing else is good. It's a common rhetorical device where he overstates his case to make a point. But Derek Kidner, the, um, Derek Kidner was a great uh, Old Testament scholar. He wrote a, a couple of brilliant commentaries on the Psalms and Proverbs. He points out that almost every verse in the first half of Psalm 16 speaks to this single-minded delight in God. Let me just point out a, a few. Verse 4, if you're following along. Verse 4, about a third of the way down. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods, which implies that the joys of those who run after the one true God increase. Look at verses 5 and 6, the next verses. Lord, you've assigned me my portion, my cup. You've made my lot, like my lot in life, secure. I'm secure. The boundary lines, which basically means property lines, uh, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a delightful inheritance. That's basically a way of saying, I have enough. I have enough. And again, the commentators point out the fact that um, <laughs> at the time this was written, it may have been especially meaningful to the Israelites who were in exile, who actually didn't own property 
And yet they are saying the, the property lines that I have, which is basically nothing, is enough. Why? Because I have you. Look at verse 9. My heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. You see, when, when sin seems good, when, when we find ourselves longing after desiring anything else in the world, the, the secret is not to squash those desires and just renounce sin and turn away. Just say no, like the old dare campaign. No, it's to find something better. Find something better. I quote this at least once a year, maybe more, but it it just preaches so well, I can't not quote it. C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, a very famous essay or sermon, uh, wrote this. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he writes, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. It's a British way of saying beach vacation. And then he concludes, he says, we are far too easily pleased. Now, up until now, this has all been pretty abstract. But the, the obvious question that we bring up is, okay, so like now what? So if I desire some things, and I know I need, to, I need to desire God, but how do I do that? How do I even cultivate that desire? There are a number of ways. Let me just point out what, it, actually, though, you could make a case the whole psalm is using this approach. But let's look again at, at um, verse 2 as a case study. Look at verse 2 again. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, why does David need to say that to God? Why does David need to tell God, God, you're my God, and apart from you, I have no good thing? Does God need to hear him say that? Not, not really. I mean, he already, God already knows. And if it's true, then David's basically just being redundant and telling God something God already knows. And if it's not true, then David is lying, and we usually recommend against lying, especially directly to God. So why is David saying this? David doesn't say this because God needs to hear David say this. David says this because David needs to hear David say this. Imagine what, what David is go, what's going on in his mind. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. When you make a declaration or a promise to somebody, so much of it is that you need to hear yourself say it. That makes it almost, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, when you hear yourself say something out loud, it changes the reality. Think of, think of like marriage vows. I, I promise I will love you. I will have you to hold you as my husband or my wife for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Now that does some good for your spouse. It's like it's good for your spouse to hear you make that promise. But you know who else it's good for? You. Because, because when those mornings inevitably come, and they inevitably come, that you wake up and you just don't feel like loving your spouse. 
When you've had the same argument, the, the exact same argument for the fifth time now, and you just don't feel like it, what do you do? You go back to the promise you made. Well, I, I promise, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health, till death do us part. See, in a sense, what David is really doing, he's preaching to himself. He's reminding himself of where his true desires lay, even if they actually don't. So even if, if part of him is thinking like, ah, my desire really isn't with God, by saying, Lord, you are the only good in my life. He's preaching to himself. He's reminding himself of the need to cultivate that desire. Look at verses 9 and 10. Skip down towards the end. He says, Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Who else... Who else can promise that? Like, what what in your life can keep you from the grave? What in your life, and this is vivid imagery, it's just straight from the Psalms, though, what will keep you from decaying someday? A healthy retirement account? A good marriage? Smart kids? Physical beauty? The respect of other people? None of those can. Not a single one. This is the old proverb, you know, the old um, two, two things certain in life, death and taxes. It's an audacious claim that we will never see decay. How can he say that? In other words, how can the power of death be broken? Only if there is someone more powerful than death. Look again at verse 10, again, towards the end. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Now let's read it one more time and think of it in the context of Jesus. Specifically what Jesus may have been thinking in the moments leading up to his crucifixion and death. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. The reality is God did abandon Jesus to the grave. You might be thinking, Chris, abandoned, that's a pretty strong word there. Yes, it is. But what did Jesus cry out on the cross as the life was eking out of his lungs? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? By the way, he's quoting another psalm there, Psalm 22. Jesus Christ was abandoned to the grave. Jesus Christ did see decay so that you don't have to fear those things. Nothing else, nothing else can prevent the inevitable march of death, the inevitable march of decay. Jesus Christ did. When you desire all those other things, you're putting your trust in something that will never do what it promises to do. But when we desire Christ, we find ourselves following the only one who can make good on that promise. When sin seems good, remember, there's a better good. I almost call this sermon a gooder good, a more good good. When sin seems good, remember, it's not don't just try to squash the sin. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Let me just make one last quick note. I I can't resist here. Um, This is not only about deferred gratification, 
Think back to the traditional religious approach. Suffer now, glory later. No fun now, and then kind of fun later in heaven. But that's not sustainable. How does verse 11 end? How does this psalm end? In your presence, there is present tense, right here, right now, fullness of joy. At your right hand are present tense, right here, right now. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those are present tense verbs. Joy, following Jesus, results in joy, not just down the road, right here, right now. Following Jesus is the better good. We're going to close in prayer. At the end of the prayer, I'll invite you to join me uh, in the prayer of confession, which is printed on your program. If you're here in person, you just have to flip the page. If you're watching from uh, the screen or from online, it'll appear on the screen. Will you join me as we close in prayer? Our Father in heaven, there are so many times that, that whatever it is in the world, our families, our security, our, our lot in life, our situation, whatever, all those things crowd you out. There are so many times in life that those things distract us from you, and, and they're subtle. They're so subtle, a lot of times we don't even notice it. Lord, in those moments, help us to see how the enemy is working against us. Help us to recognize his barbs and his snares. Help us to resist them. Not in our own strength, not by us trying to overpower him, but through the power of Christ who already has overpowered death. Help us to see the greater good, the gooder good. Jesus Christ, would he change and transform our lives. Oh Lord, we confess our sins as we join all together praying the prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. The glory of your name. Amen. Now hear this good news, brothers and sisters. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, The power of sin is broken. Your sins are forgiven.